You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. If you have Bibles, you can make your way to uh, the Gospel of Mark, uh, Mark chapter 6. A little update to the uh, title of the sermon for today, uh, different from what's in your, uh, your bulletin. It's, it, we're going to actually call this the sending one. There's so much in this text, we had to kind of like focus in a little bit on something different. So we're going to call this the sending one. And what we'll see um, today in Mark 6 is that it's Jesus who is uh, the sending one. And as we, as we get ready to read uh, a part of this chapter, I just, I'm inviting you this morning to start by, by contemplating this question. What does Jesus ask of his followers? As he sends his followers out into the world, what does Jesus call them to? What does he ask of them? And what we'll see, and what I ask you to listen for even in just the next few moments, is that it's both far more and far less than we're prone to think. He asks far more of us, and he asks far less of us than we're naturally inclined to think. So, With that, listen now with open ears to this book that we love. This is the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6. I'll read the first 13 verses, and then I'll skip over to verse 30 uh, and read through verse uh, 52 from there. Mark, chapter 6. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Verse 7. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except the staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave, Then when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Skip down to verse 30, Mark 6, verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. 
And when they had found out, they said five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Verse 45. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, even as we read earlier, the father of the demon-possessed boy cry out to you. Uh, We confess this morning, we believe, but we ask now that you would help our unbelief. And we pray that, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Amen. So with all that's uh, packed into this text, uh, we'll focus this morning on Jesus' sending of the twelve, and how that has really enormous implications for our lives as those who are also sent by Jesus. So four things. Sent on God's mission, sent to suffer, sent for compassion, and sent with insufficient sufficiency, which we'll explain what that means in a little while when we get there. Uh, So first up, sent on God's mission. Uh, As we've been seeing in Mark, if you've been with us, Uh, Jesus comes and he proclaims the kingdom of God. He calls people to repent and to believe in the good news of the gospel. Uh, That God is and will save his people and will reconcile the world to himself. And then in order to display that God's kingdom has now come with power and power to restore all that sin seeks to destroy, Jesus heals people and he casts out demons and even brings back, like we saw last week, he brings back people from the dead. So this is Jesus' mission. Uh, It's what he has been sent by God into the world to do. And we read in John's gospel that that Jesus says, he does nothing of his own accord, but only what I see the Father doing. And whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. So Jesus himself, as we think about Jesus as the sending one, first, Jesus himself is sent. He's the sent one first. And then he becomes the sending one. And as we read here, it's actually very early in his ministry and it's shockingly fast in his discipleship of the 12, which we'll come back to in a little while. He sends them out to continue the very same mission that he himself is in the world doing. And we read, we learn from Mark 6, a few characteristics of this mission that the the 12 are sent out on. Uh, It's authoritative and it's powerful. So Jesus gives his disciples, gives the 12 authority over demons. They have power to heal the sick. So unlike John the Baptist, uh, and unlike men and women who heard Jesus teach, or even those who were healed by him and then went out and told other people about that, 
the disciples are actually serving as the very representatives of Jesus himself. Uh, They're preaching the same gospel. They've been imparted with some of the same authority and the same power to display that the kingdom of God is at hand. It's also, we read here, a word and deed mission. It's both a word and deed mission. Just as Jesus, in his own ministry, proclaims the gospel with his words and meets tangible physical needs, so here we see the 12 doing the same exact thing as they're sent out. It's a dependent mission. So the disciples take only the barest essentials. Uh, Spiritually, they are dependent on Jesus' authority and power. We've already read that. But they will also likewise be dependent now in their physical circumstances. They'll depend, they'll have to depend on the hospitality of people that they've never met. And without money and without bread, when Jesus later in their ministry will teach them how to pray, and he will teach them to pray, give us today our daily bread, they will be people who know what it really is to rely on the provision of God, not just to pay lip service to that. And lastly, it's an urgent mission. Not only a dependent one, but an urgent one. The the lack of provisions that they take with them, and even the language of the original text here, it recalls the urgency of the exodus from Egypt centuries earlier. Like, have your staff in your hand and go. No encumbrances. Just go. And Jesus says to his disciples, go and keep going. Stay where you're received until you depart from there. Leave when you're rejected. And if you're rejected, shake the dust off of your feet as this tangible picture to the people there that the rejection is a big deal. It's not just a matter of rejecting these disciples and their message. It's actually rejecting God himself. Now this here is is Jesus giving specific instructions to specific people. So we can't just take everything in this text and immediately plug and play it into our own lives. Like most of us don't walk about in sandals and with staffs as we carry on the mission of God in the world. But in every age, Jesus does send his followers to carry on the same mission, the mission of God. In the Great Commission, he calls disciples to make more disciples, uh, to baptize people, to teach people to obey all that Jesus has commanded. So it's not a mission for, for merely the few or merely the professionals. It's a ministry for every follower of Jesus. The, the church we read throughout the New Testament, it's called to be a, a royal priesthood, the Apostle Peter says, or a kingdom of priests, the Apostle John says. So it's been famously quoted before by people significantly smarter than myself, that the church doesn't have a mission, the mission now has a church. And what that quote means is that the same mission that God began all the way back in the Garden of Eden, all the way back when sin entered and fractured the world, that mission that God continued then through the law and through the prophets, that mission that he fulfilled by sending his only begotten son, Jesus, he now is continuing through this kingdom of priests, which is the church. And so this is why This is why at a foundational level here at Liberty Church, we do things like Easter outreach. Uh, And we do things, one of our rhythms of grace, these nine regular pursuits of the Christian life, one of those here for our church is mission. Because you and I get to be part of this same mission, God's mission in the world. In both word and deed, we get to continue proclaiming the kingdom of God. We continue to call people to repent and believe the good news about Jesus. Uh, We continue, as we'll do together at Easter Outreach and throughout the year, hopefully, serve and bless people, even with some of Jesus' own authority and power in the world. 
And we do that with dependence, and we do that with a sense of urgency, always remembering that there are other people who need to hear and who need to see the kingdom of God, that they too, like us, might repent and believe and enter the kingdom of God. But lest we be naive, let's also see second here, the disciples are sent to suffer. They're sent on God's mission, but they're sent to suffer. Built into this sending of the 12 is a dual expectation. And maybe you heard it as we, as we read. It's expected that they're going to be fruitful, that they'll be received, that they'll be effective in some of the places Jesus is sending them. But it's also expected that they'll be rejected by other people and in other places. The reason that Jesus prepares them for rejection is because it's not hypothetical. It's not hypothetical. It's not if this is going to happen. It's just a matter of when and where it's going to happen. And we're not able to get into this too much today, but this is actually the reason why Mark chapter 6 unfolds the way it does. It starts with Jesus being rejected in his own hometown of Nazareth. The people there take offense at him. They take offense at his message. And then, and we didn't get to read it today, but smashed in the middle of this chapter, after the 12 are sent out, but before they return, is this interlude, is this tangent about the death of John the Baptist at the hands of a man named Herod. Why does that show up smashed in the middle of this account of Jesus sending the 12? Well, if you've ever uh, bought a home, or you've ever taken out a, a substantial loan for something, when you close, when you go to the closing table, when you sign your name like 4,000 times in a single day, one of the statements that a lending company is required by law to give you is a disclosure. Here's your monthly payment, here's the terms, here's the interest percentage, all that stuff, but also, here's the total amount you're actually going to spend. Here's the real cost. And as Mark recounts the sending of the 12, which remember, this is actually the Apostle Peter, his account of his own being sent with, with the other 11 by Jesus, it's like that disclosure form in Mark chapter 6. You'll be sent out by Jesus himself on God's mission in the world with some of his own power and authority. Full disclosure, it will cost you your life. It will cost you your life. Jesus was rejected in his own hometown. John the Baptist was killed. And forerunner to Jesus that he always was and is, it pointed forward to Jesus' own eventual death at the hands of offended, calculating people, at the hands of cowardly, vacillating rulers. As one author put it, Mark 6, quote, draws mission and martyrdom, discipleship and death into an inseparable relationship. John's martyrdom not only prefigures Jesus' death, but also the death of anyone who would follow him. So the call of Jesus is always first, come and see. Come and see. But then for all who do come and see, for all who come and believe in Jesus and are, are thereby adopted as sons and daughters into the family of God, the call then becomes, now go and die. Come and see, now go and die. Go and be fruitful, but also go and be rejected. Go and suffer loss from things as relatively small as your own comfort and reputation to things as massive as your dearest relationships or even your life itself. 
unless we think this pertains only to these 12 in Mark 6, in just a couple chapters, Jesus says this actually applies to anyone who follows him. In Mark 8, 34, he says, if anyone, anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And he goes on to say, for whoever, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. As 21st century Americans, we might be the most suffering-averse people who have ever set foot on this planet. I think that's possible, that we are the most suffering-averse people that have ever walked on the face of the earth. We want benefits without the cost, uh, the fruitfulness without the rejection. Uh, When we suffer, when we suffer more than most people in the history of the world, we're prone to question absolutely everything about our lives. Or, and, to recruit attention or sympathy around us to make sure that other people notice how much we're suffering in that moment. So if, if, we're, if we're to scroll through, like right now, if we were to scroll through our social media feed, two themes you would find occurring most often there would be the, my life is so much better than yours, uh, the I don't suffer theme, and its first cousin, my life is so much harder than yours, which is really, if you think about it, just the same thing in a slightly different direction. Look at me because actually I suffer worse than you do. So if you want to talk about countercultural aspects of the Christian life in this time and place, the time and place in which we live, this is it. Here you go. Being sent by Jesus will mean we get to use our lives for the best, most significant things possible, eternity-shaping things. And we should be honored, and we should be humbled, and we should be amazed by that. But we should never be naive about that. In 2 Corinthians 2, the Apostle Paul has this famous passage about the scent of the scent. Okay, two different words for scent there. Uh, What do Jesus' followers smell like, in other words? And he writes this, he says, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one, a fragrance from death to death, and to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Being the aroma of Christ means that To some, we will smell like life. And to others, we will always smell like death. And that we can't be one of those things without the other. That if we're actually unwilling to smell like death to some people, to if we avoid the cost and the suffering and the rejection that's involved in being sent by Jesus, we'll never actually really smell like life to anyone either. They go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. So we're not only sent on God's mission, but part of that, we're sent to suffer. Third, we are sent for compassion. Sent for compassion. In verse 30, uh, the 12 return to Jesus. And despite whatever rejection they may have faced along the way, uh, we find out they were incredibly fruitful. So many people are now coming and going among them, wanting to hear more, wanting to be taught about the kingdom of God, that they can't even eat. They can't even find time for meals in their day. It's actually an important lesson for for another day. Faithful labor for the kingdom of God will always and only produce more labor. More labor. If we are sent out by Jesus into the world, it's not the kind of thing with a start date and an end date. If we go and we are faithful, it will always create more opportunities for more 
labor. We can't think about it as a project. We've got to think about it differently than that. But recognizing then their exhaustion, Jesus offers the 12 rest. Did you hear that? Come away and rest a while. And it's this incredible gift that he offers these weary men who've been traveling around and are tired and they finally come home and they don't even have time to eat. Come away and rest a while. Except they don't get it. They don't get the rest. Did you see? Did you hear that? A huge crowd outruns the boat, which as a person that grew up in New Jersey, like the pace of that is just aggravating beyond belief to me. How do you outrun a boat on the shore of the land? The wind must have been terrible. They outrun, they outrun the boat so that by the time the disciples get to this desolate place where they're supposed to rest, they find out they've got to go right back to work. They've got to go right back to it. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, if you're familiar even with, with the Bible at all or with this story. The feeding of the 5,000, which is actually more like the feeding of the 10,000 or 12,000. The 5,000 was just the number of, of men there. So this famous miracle, the only one actually recorded in all four of the Gospels in our Bibles, it happens in a moment that was originally planned for rest. And not by the disciples, planned by Jesus, who knows things, planned by Jesus for rest. That's like the understatement of the century right there. It was supposed to be a leadership retreat. It was supposed to be Jesus and the 12 getting away together for some rest and some time. So do you know this feeling? When you desper- you're just exhausted and you desperately need rest, and then the phone rings, and you know you should answer it. Or you block out time in your packed schedule to do something that rejuvenates you, that's restful to you, and it's that very moment when some kind of crisis emerges in, in the life of someone you know and love. Or you even like go away from your normal setting. You like go to like another town, or you just go away, and, you, and while you're there, you run into somebody you know who's got a ton of stuff going on in their life, and they're maybe even harder for you to love, and like, I wanted to get away from things, why am I running into this person here? It's that kind of moment for the disciples when Jesus feeds the 5,000, the 12,000. So why? Why does Jesus here, why, why does he not, like at the beginning of Mark, withdraw from the crowds? Why does he not just stay the course and continue on the rest that he had been planning? Because, verse 34, looking out on these men and these women and these children, It says Jesus had compassion on them. His heart broke. His heart broke. He saw their suffering. They were like sheep without a shepherd. These are people made in the image of God who are meant to be led faithfully into the things of God who instead have become these aimless, wandering souls whose blind leaders have only led them further into death. And so instead of rest in a scene that's incredibly reminiscent of Israel in the wilderness, a desolate place grouped by fifties and hundreds, Jesus, who is the better Moses, feeds the people with bread from heaven. Instead of manna this time, it's a very modest meal. And he multiplies it miraculously, supernaturally, until everyone is satisfied. Everyone is satisfied and there's leftover. There's 12 baskets of leftover. It's a, it's a picture of the satisfaction of the, the abundance of the kingdom of God. And as we read this text, my prayer for you and for me is that we would have the eyes of Jesus. 
that God would give us the eyes of Jesus, that when we're exhausted and overwhelmed and we feel our frailty and we so desperately want to rest, that in those moments we would see people not through the lenses of the time and the energy that it's going to cost us to step in again, but we'd see them through the lenses of compassion. Jesus' compassion. The whole point of God's mission is that aimless, wandering people would be loved and cared for by Jesus. That sheep without a shepherd would then be shepherded by Jesus, who is the good shepherd. That those in darkness would come out of darkness and step into the light. That those in death would look on Jesus and live. That's the point of God's mission in the world. That's why Jesus was sent. And it's why Jesus sends his followers to continue that mission. So thank God, thank God that Jesus looked on us and had compassion. Thank God that he counted compassion more worthwhile than his own needs. Thank God that in the course of our lives, and I'm sure we can think of these people in our own lives, that other followers of Jesus sacrificed their own rest and their own well-being to show you and me compassion. We can't ever forget that before we are ever sent by Jesus on God's mission, we are the aimless, wandering, leaderless sheep. We are this crowd. Before we are ever the ones sent by Jesus, we are this crowd. And for us to hear and to see and to enter the kingdom of God meant that Jesus' followers, and even more importantly, Jesus himself, was moved more by compassion than the need for rest. So please don't misunderstand in any way what I'm saying here. We do need rest. And we do need boundaries. And the people that we have the privilege of serving, including one another in this room, we don't always have the same definition of what like a crisis is. And so if you always let other people define that for you, you'll never eat and you'll never sleep. But as much as there is a legitimate need for rest and rest is good, there's also a need to forego rest at times. To interrupt rest for the sake of compassion. To count compassion, as Jesus and the disciples do here, more worthwhile. In the kingdom of this world, in the kingdom of, of self, the message will always be, me first. Look out for number one. But the kingdom of God will say both, come away and rest. Come away and rest. But sometimes, even as you're resting or trying to rest, see the real people, see the real need, and let compassion overrule. Fourth and finally, sent with insufficient sufficiency. If there's one thing actually that leapt off the pages of Mark for me this week, it was how early in their own discipleship and how immature and, how even, and even how unbelieving the 12 were when they were sent out by Jesus. So either Jesus has like the worst leadership assessment and vetting process ever known, or there's something a lot greater at work here that we're meant to learn from. Up to this point in Mark, the disciples' record is anything but stellar. And you've heard this if you've been with us in this series. They've impeded Jesus' mission. They've opposed him. They've rebuked him multiple times for things he's done that they don't understand. They've become exasperated with him. Most shocking to me, though, is the last line we read this morning, the last line of verse 52, that they didn't understand the feeding of the 5,000 and they didn't understand Jesus then walking out to them on the water afterward. Why not? Because their hearts were hardened. So they still, after all of this, 
don't understand who Jesus really is, they still have hardness in their hearts. And I invite you this morning, think about the implications of that for our own discipleship. How we're sent by Jesus. The 12 who Jesus sends out to preach the gospel, to heal people, to cast out demons, and who are effective and fruitful in that mission, they are doing so while hardness remains in their heart, while there is still a vast amount of unbelief in their own heart. Now, to be sure, there are different types of hardness of heart. There's the hardness of heart that entrenches itself against God and his kingdom. We even saw a glimpse of that in Nazareth. Jesus marvels at their unbelief, their hardness in that way. If you've been reading through the Bible with us in a year, as many of you are, you've recently read in Exodus how Pharaoh does the same thing. He hardens his heart against God. The disciples here have some different kind of hardness of heart, and I'm not even sure I understand that completely. But in their hardness, in their unbelief, they keep on going with Jesus. They don't entrench themselves against him. They keep on going. They keep following. They keep failing. And the hardness of their heart keeps getting exposed again and again, but they keep pressing on to know and to follow and to be with Jesus. It's a beautiful picture, and it's hopeful because it means that you and I can actually be effective for the sake of God's kingdom. If they can be effective, it means you and I can be effective. One of the most honest, and Bob spoke to this so well just a little while ago today, the most honest, hope-filled lines in all of Scripture comes in that Mark 9 passage in just a few chapters from here, where this father says to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. I mean, if that is not the anthem of the Christian life, there is no anthem to the Christian life. That God in his grace not only keeps pursuing us in our continued unbelief, in the continued places where we find hardness in our heart, but that in that state, and long before we would ever arrive, he will send us out to continue his mission in the world. Jesus will send you out. He will send me out. He will send us out long before we're ready, long before it makes sense. And he'll do that in part to show us just how insufficient we are. To expose even the hardness of our hearts and our unbelief. Back in verses 35 and 36, the disciples tell Jesus, hey, it's getting late. You should send these people away so they can go find some food. What does Jesus say to them? You give them something to eat. Jesus, what are you going to do? No, 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 disciples. What are you going to do? What a line. What a line. And these men, look at this, these men who just returned from casting out demons and healing the sick with the authority and power of Jesus immediately resort, like we do, to what they can accomplish in their own strength. Put on their green accounting visors. Well, it'll take 200 days wages, about two-thirds of a year's salary to buy enough bread. Do we have that money? Should we go get it? I guess we should go get it. All this serves to illustrate we are sent with insufficient sufficiency. In other words, we are woefully insufficient to accomplish the mission of God. With our unbelief, with our hardness of heart, with our tendency to constantly resort to what we can accomplish in our own strength, what chance do we have in the world to be effective for the mission of God? Every chance in Jesus. Every chance in Jesus. In Jesus, our insufficiency becomes fully sufficient. It becomes the means that God uses to advance his mission. As a scholar named James Edwards put it, the sending of these particular individuals 
And at this stage of their understanding of Jesus, testifies to the beleaguered believers in Mark's church, indeed to believers in every age, that the fulfillment of the word of God depends not on the perfection or the merit of the missionaries, but on the authoritative call and the equipping of Jesus. In other words, sending is infinitely more about the sender than the sent. Sending is infinitely more about the sender than the sent. And Jesus will put you and he will put me in a situation so far beyond us, it's insane. So far beyond our understanding and our faith and our abilities and our resources that we will be painfully aware of our insufficiency and we will have to depend on him. And the one who gives his power and authority to 12, who at this point don't really get who he is, this is the same one who sends you and me out in our insufficiency to be his representatives on God's mission today. So God save us from a perfectionism that thinks we have a better plan than Jesus. That keeps waiting for a hypothetical future day when we will feel ready and prepared enough to be sent by him. If we think that way, that day will never come. That day will never come. Instead, recognize Jesus will always ask both more of his followers and less of his followers than we're prone to think. He will always ask more. You give them something to eat. Jesus calls us to be his representatives in the very mission of God. As we say it at Liberty, living, speaking, and serving as his very presence in our region. He calls us to suffer more than we want to, to offer up our very lives for his cause and to follow him into rejection and into death. And he calls us to see people through his eyes and to count compassion more worthwhile than rest. If you find yourself this morning too passive in that, if you hang back, if you assume that, that this is someone else's job, and if your first thought on seeing the massive needs that exist around you is always, well, what can I do? What can I do about that? Learn to answer reflexively in light of Mark chapter 6. A lot, a lot, infinitely more than you would be able to do on your own power and strength. The church does not have a mission. God's mission has a church, and by the grace of God, you and I are that church. At the same time, Jesus asks less than we're prone to think, especially those of us who are inclined to think that we can fix everything who think that the world actually at the end of the day rests on our shoulders and not his. Jesus asks us to be his very representatives, but he never asks us to be the savior of the world. He asks us to suffer, but infinitely less than he himself will suffer, dying in our place, bearing the weight and the cost of sin himself. He asks us to count compassion more important than our rest, but also to receive his compassion and to find rest for our souls. So may we be sent by Jesus to carry on this mission of God. May we do that in our time and place. May we have open eyes and ears to see how God is at work and join him in that work. And like the 12, and like the followers of Jesus in every age, may our insufficiency, the insufficiency of the sent, always magnify the sufficiency of Jesus the sender. Amen. Amen. Let me pray. Oh Lord, our God, you have given us this glorious gospel of our risen Savior and Master, Jesus Christ. 
grant that as we joyfully receive the good news for ourselves, that we might be those who gratefully share it with others. And then in all of this, in our weakness and frailty and insufficiency and our own continued unbelief and hardness of heart, that we and everyone else would ever give glory to you by whose grace alone we are what we are. And we pray this through the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.